Uh, but I've always believed, I, I, I mean, of course, there's homophobia and there, uh, of course, always will be, because anything that's different uh, will attract um, hatred of one sort or another. But I've always thought that the British public, on the whole, rather likes its queers. Hello and welcome to this edition of Up the Arts with me, Thomas McGill. This is the only podcast out there dedicated to LGBT arts, culture and events happening now. It really is, so make sure to tell everyone about it. And it's inevitable in a series like this, we're going to be discussing a lot of new queer art. But this particular episode is very different because we're discussing a show or a play that you may think you're familiar with, Le Cage Fall. It's the play, however, uh, and it's been about since the 70s, I believe, but never translated into English until now. And uh, that work and that adaptation has been done by the one and only Simon Callow, who, who joins me now. Now, we're recording this in a little a bit of a peculiar sequence because I've already spoke to Jez Bond, who is the artistic director at the Park Theatre, where the play will be. And the director of the play. And the director of the play, and also Michael Mattis, who plays George, the, the lead or one of the, the leads in it. And I have to say, to start off with, they were very complimentary of your work and what oh, you've cool. done. How oh, nice. How oh, nice. It, it was quite tricky in a way. I, I was very um, pleased to be asked to translate it because I'd uh, been sent a translation of the play about 15 years ago for me to be in it as an actor. And I didn't like the version at all because it transposed it to England. And it just, I don't know, it, it just lost so much of what's delightful about it. Mm. So when Jez said to me that he wanted me to translate it exactly as it was written and to present that world of 1973 in Saint-Tropez, mm. I was really pleased because I think it's quite important in terms of gay awareness and self-awareness and history and so on, that we know how people lived before. And of course, in 1973, in France, life was very different for gay men mm. and women to the way it was in Britain, because there was no anti-homosexual legislation as such. There was a lot of pressure, of course, uh, uh, to conform morally, but that was not legal. And uh, which is why, of course, all people like Oscar Wilde and so on could escape to France uh, when they were, if they were, they ran afoul of the law. Right. It's the Napoleonic Code, actually. It's part of what Napoleon established as the law. So it's been part of French uh, legal history for, for you know, two centuries. It's well, well established. But uh, nonetheless, it's another time, another place. Interestingly, the play written by Jean Poiret, was, uh, who, was, who played Georges in the original production, as far as we know, Jean Poiret wasn't gay at all. Mm. And Michel Serrault, uh, who plays uh, Albin, I don't think either, certainly not publicly or openly in any way. So what they really were doing was offering a straight men's eye of a gay world that they were familiar with because they used to do stand-up comedy right. in clubs mm. like La Cage au Vol. And it's very, very, I think, probably very, very well observed. So what you've got basically is a club which, in which almost everybody who works there is gay. And it's a sort of a refuge from the world where you don't have to conform mm. socially in any way at all. And uh, it's a madhouse, a complete madhouse. I mean, they're all screaming at each other all day long, but in a 
I wouldn't even necessarily say a loving way, but in a, in, a, in, a, in a way which is just very normal for them. It's all part of life. It's, you know, getting a show on is always a problem. Yeah. There are always crises, temperamental crises, technical problems, all of that kind of thing. But then they have, uh, of course, as everybody knows from all the other versions, they have a particular crisis, which is that Georges has had a son from an earlier, uh, 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 yet very brief, a one-night stand, basically, and he's brought the boy up. And so has Alban. They brought the boy up together, which in itself is pretty interestingly yes. modern, you know, by, by most standards. And uh, uh, the boy's fallen in love with the girl and, and, and uh, the, uh, uh, wants to marry her, and the, the, the parents of the girl want to meet Georges and Alban. So it's immediately a crisis because they're um, extremely right-wing. And so the... Out of love of Georges, uh, out of love of uh, Laurent, which is his son, uh, Georges and uh, Albert endeavour to turn themselves into straight people. <laughs> and it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful, you know, politically, that's such an interesting thing. Yeah. And uh, Albert resists fiercely, but in the end he kind of gives in, but it, bits of it keep popping out, you know. And, um, uh, in fact, in later versions, both in the musical and particularly in Mike Nichols's rather wonderful film, The Birdcage, their right-wing credentials, the parents' right-wing credentials, are very, very strongly stated, much less so in the play. They're sort of rather more complicated. They're not uh, just moral majority people. They're uh, sort of socialists who, uh, on the other hand, are very anti-gay, which is not an unheard of Mm. phenomenon. So, and and he's a sort of working class man who's built himself up, the father. So it's not, even there, it's a little bit more complicated, the play, than it is either in the film or in the musical. And uh, I like that. I like it that it's much more open-ended and much more, in a sense, true to life, although, of course, it's a a mad farce. Um, um, But it's not one of those farces like Fado where it's kind of absolutely... the the, the plot is obsessively driving everybody. Mm. It's much more improvised than that. It's got a very lovely, crazy, almost surreal quality. And also a reality to it because, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm only familiar with The Birdcage and with the uh, musical that was here uh, a few years ago. And I suppose all gay men who were born in the 70s and and long before that went through that period of trying to hide their sexuality. And, you know, there's a realism to the extent you would go to. Yeah. (laughs) Perhaps. Yes. I I mean, uh, for me, because I I was, you know, in the 60s, I was was in my teens and so on. And uh, I can't quite explain this, but I, I never felt very oppressed Right, okay. And I never felt any great need to conceal my sexuality. I was completely open about being gay at school. However, I was a gay virgin, but but nonetheless, I was gay. And uh, nobody hassled me, and people teased me and uh, flirted with me and uh, uh, provoked me in all kinds of ways, but not in an aggressive way at all. And then I was lucky enough, my very first job was in uh, a bookshop, but I wrote this letter to Laurence Olivier just saying how much I admired the National Theatre, and he wrote back and said, why didn't you come and work here in the box office? So I was immediately in an environment where sexuality was much more open Mm. and celebrated, even, one might say. But I do remember one of the boys in the box office, an outrageously 
good-looking and but outrageously camp uh, guy called Peter had a was a was a drag artist uh, uh, by night. Right. Okay. The mime timers he belonged to, you know, because everything was mimed as it still is mostly in drag, and uh, and he took me to various clubs and I was kind of a bit taken aback um, by suddenly seeing so many gay people in various stages of outrageousness. You know, some there were drag, there were people in drag in the pub. In, it was the Union in Camberwell, which was which was a very famous uh, drag pub. Yes. There were lots of drag pubs across London. The and scene the, must have been fascinating then. I, I suppose it was, yes. Uh, I mean, it was... A bit daunting, actually. Mm. People were so... Because homosexuality itself was illegal. Mm. These clubs were sort of... I mean, I don't think anybody was turned away because they were straight, but there was a strong sense of it being a, an enclosed world. Right. You'd feel pretty uncomfortable, I think, if you were straight and you went into one of those places. Mm -hmm. It would be assumed, if you'd gone in, that you were at least bisexual, you know? Right. Which, of course, lots of people were. But there was a lot of pressure. I mean, I've never adored the gay scene. Mm. I've always felt quite a lot of pressure because I never, not pressure from, you know, I didn't feel pressure from the outside world. I felt more pressure in the gay world because I didn't seem to conform to any particular shape or, or manner that was regarded as either attractive or amusing or whatever. I, I sort of hovered around the edges of the gay scene itself a bit. Um, but I was terrifically um, fascinated by this this um, uh, 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 drag thing because I wondered why. Because in fact, I don't think Peter or, or any of his colleagues in the in the mime timers yes. were effeminate in life at all. They weren't, you know, didn't have an aspiration to be women, but they just loved getting up in this costume and doing their shows. Um, Perhaps it was just seen as the only way back then to kind of create a, an identity that was so different from what they were doing Monday to Friday, nine to five. Possibly. It's possibly is that. I mean, it was just camp, really. It was high camp. Yes. And fun. Um, yes, and part of the secret code, mm -hmm. you know. If only you knew what I was doing when <laughs> I, you know, youth... Say, think of your fellow office workers, you know. <laughs> but then I, I had another, I had then a couple more experiences, which were interesting in, in a different way. I went with friends from school, a girl and a boy. We went to Tangier. Must have been uh, something like 68, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Tangier was as gay as all get out, despite obviously it being a very, uh, you know, strongly Muslim country. Mm -hmm. but Completely gay. Um, uh, I mean, it was a, it was a, a refuge for, for, for gay people, and there was a famous a, a, a community of very famous people like Paul Bowles and David Herbert, the English um, publisher and poet, and a whole lot of others. And Gore Vidal was always around, and so on. And they had a, a, a very uh, um, head-on sexual relationship with the with the Moroccan young mm -hmm. Moroccans, you know, which didn't seem to give anyone any trouble at all in those days. I mean, it was a, just to understand. I mean, when you got off the, the boat, when I got off the boat, a, a boy came up to me and said, English? And I said, yes. He said, Charlie Chaplin. I said, yes. He said, you want it? I said, want what? He said, my sister, my mother, my brother, me. And it was, I mean, I dare say, if I'd given him enough money, I could. He was, it was seven or something. Yes. 
Oh, I totally. And of course, it was a refuge because the law hadn't changed yet. Mm-hmm. So it must have been, hold on. No, it was 67, so the law must have just changed. But, you know, the habits car- carried on. The, one had the feeling that it was not metropolitan people, but people from small towns and so on, would come to Morocco to be themselves. Mm. And uh, they'd wear hot pants and uh, high heel shoes. And, uh, this is the boys. The boys, oh gosh, yes. Uh, uh, the boys. And uh, stop every five yards to repair their makeup, you know, and uh, be tottering about. Uh, and no, it's, it's amazing to think now. No reproach from the local community, whatever. No, nobody batted an eyelid. It's just absolutely extraordinary. Absolutely fascinating. Go back to your days in the drag in London. I wonder yeah. any parallels to what you're now adapting into the play Lacage and the chaos that goes on in the club in uh, in France that is run I by George think, and Albert. I don't think there was much because this, this club is a very professionally run and highly successful organisation. Mm. I mean, they've really built it up, and it's and uh, it was it's uh, interesting that in the audience of the show that night that's yes. going on during the play is Prince Philip. <laughs> which was a very risque thing to say yeah. uh, at the time. But but it, it, it's true that, you know, I, I don't... I, I should really know this, but I'm not sure that there was... There were the places like Annabelle's and so on, where there were, uh, I think, drag shows. I can't think that there was a mm-hmm. high-end drag club in London. I don't think there was. I don't believe so. I mean, later, a little bit later came Danny LaRue, and that's a different thing. That's yes. just, you know, big West End show. But a club like Madame Jojo's, there was nothing like Madame Jojo's. No, that was much later. Yet. Much, yes. much, much later. I didn't know clubs like that at all. Uh, and so, because uh, the, the, the union was nothing. Like, it, was, mm-hmm. it wasn't exactly sleazy, but it was a pub, you know. And drag was drag performers were very, very prized. Uh, I mean, on the gay scene, people like Mrs. Shufflewick, one of the greatest comedians I ever saw in my life. But Mrs. Shufflewick was a, actually a drunken old Australian actor, but, but, <laughs> uh, 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 but a genius. Uh, but, but Mrs. Shufflewick was a, a, herself, the, the character, mm-hmm. was a sort of 65-year-old, uh, but lewd, I mean, filthy man. <laughs> old thing who's sitting there nursing a gin, you know, and saying these outrageous things. But there was nothing sexy about yes. it. I mean, it was pretty louche. I mean, it was... <laughs> I mean, okay. the, the, the very politically incorrect stuff, actually, uh, nowadays, I'm afraid. But that was very big. Mm. Gay performers, I mean, gay drag artists was a big thing that there were lots I'm trying to remember the names now but they've sort of gone from me a bit but uh, and there was a show called Birds of a Feather I remember in 68 which Mm -hmm. was a drag it was a big show with lots of drag artists in it right and the hedonism of the whole gay scene was probably in other bars as well. I think yes. the Royal Vauxhall Tavern, which is yeah. still there, has got a, a pedigree or, a, or yeah. a history of that. Yes, that's absolutely right. It, it was um, there was plenty. You know, there, there were plenty of outlets, mm. especially in London, uh, if you wanted to 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 be part of that scene. And Soho, of course, was absolutely full of 
dives. Um, uh, le lesbian as well. I mean, there was Strange Ways, which was not in... Uh, so I think Strange Ways was in Kensington or something like right, that. Right, OK, yeah. But it was part of something that has disappeared. Now, it's interesting that had I translate had I wanted to transpose mm. it to London but keep it in 1973 I could still have used a lot of Polari yes which which was a very quite a serious way of gay people being able to communicate without other people knowing what they were mm -hmm. talking about all that Vard of the Eeks and uh, look at the the Lowells and all of that was was very was actually a practical sort of tool for being able to say the unsayable. Did you use it back then? No. No. No, I was, it, by then it was really just Julian and Sandy. It was all of that, you right. know. God knows what the general public made of that. I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, it's so outrageous. And they were obviously living together in sin, yes. Julian and Sandy. What the public made of it, I have no idea. Yeah. Uh, but I've always believed, I, I, I mean, of course there's homophobia in there. Of course, always will be because anything that's different uh, will attract um, hatred of one sort or another. But I've always thought that the British public, on the whole, rather likes its queers. Uh, and uh, there were so many people that were hugely popular. Everybody knew they were gay. Ivan Avello and Noel Cowell, they didn't say it, but everybody mm. knew. There was no question about it. And later, you know, there were so, so many... P performers, including Danny LaRue, but, 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 mm -hmm. but lo lo lots of, uh, you know, Larry Grace and whatever. Uh, all of that was, was rather liked, and I'm not sure nowadays, I think perhaps people think that Larry Grayson was sort of pandering to mm. homophobia, actually, by setting himself up as a ludicrous, limp-wristed queen, queen. But I'm not sure that that's quite true. I think the public actually rather liked him, and... Uh, I certainly, my own family was slightly different, uh, um, a bit more sophisticated perhaps in some ways than, than, than some people, but uh, there was no anti-gay prejudice at all. It was all. a bit crass, that, that depiction, wasn't it, really? It was. It was. I, I'm, I did, hated it at the time. Now I think back, I, I don't, don't know he was... It was um, a, a persona, you know. Mm. I mean, Belfast was very interesting in that kind of way because there was the most famous one. I was there, the most famous uh, Northern Irish comedian of all was James Young, Jimmy Young. And um, uh, he and his partner were, 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 ran the, the company, yeah. Jack. And, uh, he, of course, his persona was totally just of a working man. Yes. But... I wonder how many of the audience knew that they were a couple. Well, I think in later life, I may be wrong on this, but I think in later life he went on to do something called R. Jimmy, yeah. which was the depiction of a real working-class woman. That's right, yes, that's and true. Yeah. You know, so at that, at that point, um, and that gave birth to a much um, to someone who's still about today called Mae McFetrich, which yes. is a really... Uh, it's a drag. He is a, a drag, as Mae McFett, which is a real working class right, Belfast yeah. mother. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. the lines that's are good. fabulous. Of course, that's right. J J James Young did do that. Even on stage, he did yes. that. He yes. played a, a, a housewife. Mm -hmm. But there, there was no sexual element. That's oh, a bit yeah. like Mrs. Brown, more like Mrs. Brown. Absolutely. Yes. yes. But someone I remember in our house being mocked, not loved necessarily back then. Right. You know. So I think when you step out of that the urban, you know, the centre of London, I perhaps see. your experience was a bit different, but 
perhaps not, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Northern Ireland was just something else on that, but I, I, I remember that the, in the production that we did in the Drama Society, the leading part was played by this fabulously beautiful young man. And um, I, I didn't know at the time that he was gay mm-hmm. at all. But then later, found it out and then uh, and, and met him, and I said, oh, God, it must have been... He, he came from uh, Lurgan. Oh, right. And uh, I said, God, it must have been so hard being young and gay and Lurgan. Not at all. He said, we had a fabulous time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was plenty yeah, like him, no I'm sure. No idea what went on there. <laughs> Better, actually, than nice. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> uh, so you should, I mean, one has to, you always has to be, one always has to be aware of the complexity of things, which is one of the things that I like so much about the casual fall, because one of the dancers is, is uh, one of the uh, drag artists is, has seven children, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and about to have another. And, uh, and, and so it, what I think is, I don't know whether this was thought to be the case at the time, but the way that I've approached it and have perhaps slightly tilted it towards a sense that despite all the conflicts and mm-hmm. tensions, at heart it's a very forgiving play and it embraces everybody. It even embraces the, the right-wing couple eventually. Mm-hmm. And there's a wonderful sense of the club, despite all those tensions that I mentioned, being in some sort of way a sort of place of healing or a, a refuge or a, or, or, or a place where people can forget the mask they wear all the time and just give in. And th- that's rather wonderfully contrived by Poiret, who wrote the play. But I don't think it's normally done the way we're going to do it. I think, it's got a, I think there's something rather beautiful about it. You do spend nine-tenths of the play dealing with problems, dealing with crises from both from the club and from outside and all sorts of crises, the press and everything, because the press doesn't come very well out of this play. That's the one yeah. uh, section of the population that isn't uh, <laughs> welcomed and healed. Like all really great comedy, I think it, it, it ends with a great healing, and I mm. think that's wonderful. And Jez and I were chatting about the relevance of bringing it back now, and it was... It was diaries as much as anything else, but he made the point it's really important in, you know, politically today, there's so much division in society and politics and, yeah. and has collided again with, with yeah. that kind of world. Yes, that, that's, that's certainly true. And not just here, but, with, you know, globally. Well, not really very much here, but, but, but really terrifyingly across the, the globe. Mm. I mean... Eastern Europe is shockingly, I mean, Moscow, I'm sort of in touch with those unbelievably heroic kids in in Moscow who, you know, every Sunday they set up a little stall Mm -hmm. on Red Square and there's every chance that they'll just be kicked in the groin and thrown to the ground and their stuff spoiled and ranked and so on. They live in sort of terror. And uh, that's, that bravery is just beyond belief, uh, mm-hmm. beyond belief. It's interesting that we're chatting about this uh, in February, LGBT History Month, and um, mm. we're going to be reflecting that as well in the uh, in the series. And um, you talked about you know Lurgan having fun and um, you know what was happening across the country and. 
if you look at the LGBT history website, lots of little outbacks across the UK are owning a little bit of their gay past. And it's fascinating to see. Yeah, and, yeah, and yeah, yeah. you know, they come to Colchester and learn about the gay past of Colchester Castle, for example. <laughs> and it's, it's really uplifting and positive. <laughs> Is that a, la- a long? Is that a, a large part of history of, of, of Colchester Castle? Who knows? Go to, <laughs> go to the uh, the tour on a Saturday morning. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the play then, as well, um, uh, is is. I mean, it probably came about, did it help that you were able to speak French? Because <laughs> that's yeah, a, a clear barrier for other people. I'm not sure that I would wish to do a version of a play in a language that I didn't speak. Mm. I mean, my, my French is sort of a little out of practice, but uh, I... I and, and, of course, the play contains a lot of jargon that I didn't know about, mm. and I needed a little help with that. I've only translated from French, and uh, well, for the good reason that's the only language, apart from English, that I speak. So I'm always trying to do the impossible, which is the challenge that besets every translator, to make it sound completely natural mm-hmm. and real, like something somebody would say, while at the same time honouring the fact that actually these people are French and they think and uh, express themselves quite differently to the way we do. Like, you know, uh, as, as, as must be the case when people are translating an Italian play or a German mm. play or whatever. You've got to... It's no good trying to make it sound absolutely as if it was these people were English and yet there they are on their, in their dacha just outside of Moscow. It yeah. just, uh, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a disjunct and... and um, you do need to know the language pretty well and uh, to, in order to do that. And uh, the, the French is, in, in many ways, a very succinct language. Um, not necessarily short. You, you don't need less words to express yourself than in English, but it tends to resolve itself into a final statement. The right, French yeah. language is inherently analytical. The English language, I think, is inherently speculative. So you're you're always because of the vast vocabulary, and the nature of the the, the way the clauses interlock and so on. The subordinate clauses have their place and so on. Your your phrasing, I think, generally in English, in a much more fluid way. Mm. Whereas French needs that sharpness and precision. You hear it in the French accent, you know. And it's nothing to do even with class or. Or, or condition, you're, you're actually, there, there, there's a sort of sense in which the French always triumphantly analyse it. It's like sort of, that's it, there's nothing more to be said on the subject, I have spoken. You know, you hear a concierge speaking mm. like that just as well as you would do uh, um, a professor of... And how hard is it then to inject humour into that? If if that's the way of it, yeah. Well, that's the challenge, and uh, and I think I have tried to do that, and from the readings we've had, uh, to some extent, achieved it. Uh, um, uh, then it's down to the actors. But but uh, I've tried to find some of that quality of that that certainty and the way that that links up with a more colourful use of language. So I don't want to sacrifice the precision of French, but I want to add in colours which are very natural to the to yeah. the English ear. 
Or British Air, I should say. And then it's part of that whole process. Where do you step back? Are you involved in casting? Are you involved in any part of the direction no. with jazz? No. What, what part of you... No, no. I've stepped right, right back. Right. Uh, and I think that's the only sensible thing to mm-hmm. do. Uh, and I know from experience. I mean, the writer is is always welcome in my rehearsals, but I, I know when I'm directing, I mean, but I know, and indeed when I'm acting, but I know that lots of actors get quite inhibited mm-hmm. by the presence. And they've got to be able to say, this is crap, you know. This is fucking crap. How, how do you make this work? And yeah. then work it out for themselves. And then I, I'm, I'm trusting that they, they've, you know, asked for a couple of cuts and things like that, which is absolutely fine by me, or to rephrase something, which is generally okay by me. Although I, I'm pretty rigorous when I, when I translate, and I do lots and lots and lots of rewrites. So the, bit, the thing that I've delivered is, is very much what I th- think is best for mm-hmm. the play. So there's a reason for my having done everything. So I, I, I wouldn't be at all happy if I felt that people were just using my text as a starting point because it's been carefully composed rhythmically right. and all the rest of it. We'll see. But when I've been in, I haven't found any problems at all of that kind. So that's great. But uh, I have adapted the play somewhat because there are some weaknesses in it, which you even see in the films, which lots of people like. I don't... The, film, the French films made yes. from Carlos Fort. I'm not very keen on them, but, but other people like them a lot more than I. But what I'm very aware of is, for example, the girl who's called Muriel, Muriel, is um, very underwritten, deeply, deeply underwritten. I'm amazed. I just can't... Under- I can only think that it might have been the ASM who, you know had the part of Muriel, which doesn't come on to the second half and all of that. But she says, yes, no, and thank you. I mean, uh, we can't be having that in... Well, it's written by straight men. (laughs) (laughs) In the 70s. All the other women get lots to say, so it's just... But but Muriel... uh, So we've sort of given Muriel a bit more of a voice, and then... uh, there are certain characters I just removed completely because oh. of uh, economy. You know, we just couldn't couldn't uh, afford another mm-hmm. actor. But that, 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 none of that was a, a great loss. And I suppose I've sort of refined the political statements a little bit. That they're a bit sort of windy mm-hmm. in the original. It's too long, far too long. I mean, if if we'd done it as printed. It would have been at least three hours and more, which I think is just too long for, for a comedy. But fascinatingly enough, mm. when they played it in Paris, Poiret and Serrault, it sometimes lasted four and a half hours because yeah. they just made stuff up all the time. <laughs> and and they'd got, I mean, the audiences loved it, they loved it, but honestly, for goodness sake. So, so it, it's been trimmed down a bit. It hasn't been censored in any way. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just think I, I hope I've, I've made it uh, stage-worthy. And I hope it has a voice of its own. And I hope it celebrates this strange madhouse, which is nonetheless rather loving at its, at its heart. Yeah. Know? I think a, a modern audience today would absolutely gasp at four and a half hours. I think even... Over oh. two and a half hours is a bit of a, a bit of an ask these days. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's uh, we're doing all right at the moment. I think it's fifty minutes each act. So, but of course, uh, I'm going to see a run uh, tomorrow, so I'll I'll learn a lot from that. It's the first run that I will have seen. So I'll learn a lot 
and this is a good moment to be making changes mm -hmm. if we if we feel we need changes. It's been de delightful in a way to to have so little responsibility for it because, but but I do have to sort of bite my tongue a bit <clears throat> because because obviously I've lived with these characters for a long time now, and I know exactly what was in my mind when I wrote what I wrote, and I could just go up to the actor and say, don't do it that way, do it this way. But I, 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 I yeah, it's not good. Well, of course, you, you've, you've done every part of the process. You, you've directed it, you've been on stage and, and now the, the adaptation. So there must be a, yeah. a real sense that yeah, you could do something a little bit different or a little bit better or perhaps that. Yeah, so biting the tongue is, uh, is definitely a skill in itself. Sure. These days... Professionally, are you happier to be behind the scenes, or is that just how no, no, things no, have no, happened? No, no, that's just the way it's uh, happened. I was—I I spent uh, half of last year preparing uh, a film that I was supposed to be directing in March, and mm -hmm. it just went to pieces in uh, the early days of January, which was tragic, really, because uh, it was all ready to go. But uh, I suppose I'll try to get it going again in a couple of years. But it's a huge thing, and I was very. Involved in it. I mean, I was, mm. it was far advanced, and uh, we'd, we'd done a lot of work and imagining and so on. So it was a terrible blow to be taken away from that. I've got the fourth world's biography throughout. I'm doing a play in, in um, June and July, but I don't think I can name it yet. So anyway, I'm doing it. Mm -hmm. I'm on tour, and I hope in London. First hand. I want to do something for Dickens this year, which may be to just revive my show called The Mystery of Charles Dickens, mm -hmm. or it might be a new adaptation of something. And a Christmas Carol is always a, a favourite. You've done a few times. Christmas Carol, I've done a, a lot. I'd like very much to do that this year in New York, if I possibly oh, could. Okay. Uh, well, there's been some interest. We made a film of it for the mm -hmm. BBC, but not of the stage show. We we went and found a warehouse and reimagined it completely. And I I, I I was so thrilled that it really works. It's a completely different thing from the show. Yes. But I think it really, really gets to the heart of Dickens. But a 75-minute one-man film is quite uh, an interesting sort of a challenge. And, a challenge you know. and then I see on, on social media, which is fabulous for um, finding out opinion on people, that, that there's, I'm not sure, is it a rumour or a um, an idea that perhaps you could play John Burton? <laughs> <laughs> yes, there was a lot of that around. I was a bit hurt, actually, to begin with. But, uh, I see I, it. <laughs> yes, I have. But, but, but on the other hand, I've heard that Tom Holland has been, uh, was sitting up in the gallery uh, uh, during the last days of Burko's reign, taking oh, really? furious notes and so on. <laughs> so I think maybe somebody else is there before me. But apparently, uh, indeed, there was an interview in which it was said that they said, oh, well, you know, surely somebody's going to do a programme about you. And uh, 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 Simon Callow's been suggested, would you like that? And he said, I wouldn't mind that at all. So, <laughs> I don't think it's my dream to play John Burko, I have to say. <laughs> I got the vocal cords for it. Yeah, well, exactly. Uh, the order. I think, I think you could cope with doing that. Maybe, maybe. Simon, it's been fascinating chatting, and um, I know the, the play will oh, be... Oh, I just should tell you, uh, yes, by the way, uh, as a matter of interest to you particularly, that uh, the, the Lyric Belfast commissioned me to write a play about my time at Queen's. Oh, right, OK. Uh, which uh, I've done, and uh, I'm about to redo, but uh, but it will sooner or later be there, because, because it was that particular moment in history, because I arrived at Queen's, just at the moment that the lyric opened. Right, yes. So we're both 50 years on from that moment. Uh -huh. 
and uh, he was interested. Uh, um, Jimmy Fay, who runs the lyric, mm-hmm. was interested in getting a play from someone. He's got obviously they've done a thousand plays about Belfast from Belfast writers, mm. but a play from someone who came from outside of Belfast. Interesting, yes. And 1969 was a sort of a an extraordinary year in, in Belfast, but it was extraordinary for me coming from London, where I'd been working at the old Vic Theatre with all these glamorous people, Maggie Smith and blah, blah. I went to school in Chelsea at the height of swinging London. OK, yeah. So for me to arrive in Belfast at that moment in history was such a shock. <laughs> it, was, it seemed to be <laughs> maybe 50 years earlier Behind than where I'd come yes. from. And then, you know, there was the whole thing of being gay and, and what, you know, how I was handling that while I was in Queens and uh, finding myself through Belfast, you know, and deciding to leave Belfast, all that. I mean, it's, it, it's quite an interesting... Well, it, it, yes. it reveals a bit about what Belfast was like, then, in, in the eyes of a, a, a 19-year-old outsider. And, and, and is there a, a schedule for when that's coming or anything? Well, I don't know about that. I've just a question of when I can rewrite it. I, I know what to do, so mm-hmm. it shouldn't be too long. And have you been back to see the new lyric? I say new, it's not oh, yes. been open a Wonderful. few years. I was there, I went, was on the building site and everything. Oh, yeah, were you? Yeah. Right, yeah. I was there at the opening, and I love it. And I did a play of it. I did a play about Jesus there. And I think the, the arts generally in Belfast, they've got another new space called the Mac. I'm not sure if you're that. familiar with it as I well. I know but it all. Yeah. Th- there's a bit of a kind of re-verge, re-emergence of, of art there, which is, which is well, great. Well, that's very, very good news. And uh, uh, I hope that those uh, companies like, um, what, what's the, Wildcat, is that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Wildcat, yes. mm-hmm. companies like Wildcat uh, are what's really needed. And, and, uh, uh, and the lyric continues to generate you know, new writing, and uh, it's such a wonderful space. It's a glorious, glorious space, and it's rather sweet down there on the lag, and it would probably be easier for it if it were in town, you know, but it's a a model of what a new Mm -hmm. theatre should be. I think it's the best new theatre that I I know of in the world. I mean, and all the new theatres I've ever been in, I think it's the best. Wow. Those Dublin architects, the Toomeys, Mm -hmm. made it, and it's a ravishing. uses all natural materials from the area. Yeah. Woods and, and stone all from mm-hmm. roundabout. Fantastic. It's a gorgeous place. There's been some criticism, I'm not sure so much now, but at the beginning, that an awful lot of the um, plays and the, the programme was looking back yeah. at the troubles and looking back at right, you know, the right, history. Right. And I think now there's, a, there's an appetite for things to look forward and to, you know, we're, we're trying to move on. Yeah. And legacy's great to acknowledge, but there, there yeah, needs yeah, to be yeah, a point yeah. that now it's part of the United Kingdom like anywhere else with all the other issues of Quite. of the rest of the United yes, Kingdom. Yes, yes, and, yes, And I think it'll be interesting to see how that programme evolves <clears throat> and how people adapt. Yes, 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 it's interesting. Simon, wonderful chatting to you. Thank you, you very, very much. Thank Can't you. wait to see Lacage, uh, the you. play. Yes, yes. And, um, yeah, thank you very much. What an absolute legend. Simon Callow there talking about Le Cage Fall, which he has adapted, and it is on at the Park Theatre from the 12th of February until the 21st of March. Tickets are available via their website, parktheatre.com. Thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast. Please subscribe, tell your friends to subscribe to Up the Arts podcast on whatever podcast app they use. Leave us a little review, it always helps. 
Arts. And you can follow us on Twitter at Up The Arts Show. And if you want to drop me a line, tell me what you think, tell me about something you think we should be covering, you can email me at uptheartsshow at outlook.com. Until next time, stay safe.